Welcome back to another episode of Flow Logic, where we're going to be presenting some curiously powerful wellness. I'm Dr. Don Casteldi. I'm Jim Watson. And we're going to be taking a real compassionate look at mental health, the people therein, and we're going to take a, an approach in which we are going to critically and, um, and with, with great thought to discuss ways in which people can optimize their experience, improve the quality of their life by examining situations, looking at what's happening, and helping people problem solve. At the end of the day, wellness is about active wellness. We've said this several times. It's not something that just kind of passively happens to you. If you're waiting for wellness to, to occur to you, then it might kind of navigate its way in your life, but it might just disappear just as quickly. It can be fleeting. And we want to avoid that. If we can avoid that, if we can understand the ingredients for you that go into wellness, now you can have greater control. And when we talk about flow, we're talking about effortless control, right? I have this awareness and navigation to be able to create an experience or relational dynamics at work and my personal life that's going to optimize my experience. I also think, I guess, you know, we've talked about it in different ways of kind of communicating. It's like personal protective equipment for your mind, right? Exactly. Yep. Um, it is the uh, recognizing that wellness is a skill. And we're going to do so all through a reverent sense of humor. Um, we'll try anyway. Yeah, we'll try anyways. Um, <laughs> I get a chance to be able to do it with one of my closest friends who has worked in the field for, you know, 30 plus years, um, has a wealth of experience. I've had an opportunity to work with numerous organizations and uh, um, individuals all surrounding the issue of mental health. And uh, we've had these conversations, right? We've had these Absolutely. numerous times over the years. Uh, you've brought me in on different jobs where it was needed. And people have continually said to us, even before podcasts were a thing, I wish we could get these conversations in front of other people so they can actually hear it. And there was never really an opportunity for it to happen. And uh, we had this, um, uh, this really interesting experience where we were speaking with uh, Paul Robillard from Hard Hat Hunter. Uh, great guy, uh, a person who has a construction company as well as um, the mastermind behind um, Hard Hat Hunter. And uh, he really wanted something new for his membership and for his company guys saying, look, there needs to be an opportunity for people in construction, trades, direct line staff, uh, nursing, teaching, people who are doing the, the daily grind to be able to receive um, some awareness and support and done so in a way that's just casual conversation. You know, I should mention that uh, Paul actually works for uh, Ed Goulet, just an absolute prince of a man. Mm. He's the president and uh, Paul's the VP. All oh, right, right. Two excellent okay. individuals running this company. So I haven't had an opportunity to meet Ed. I look forward to because obviously he is, uh, um, uh, he's very interested in this whole process. He has an invested interest in, in having people do well. And uh, both guys seem, from what you were telling me and what I've learned about Paul, both guys you know, come from modest means, not unlike ourselves, and realize that everyone has an opportunity to be able to flourish given the right context and experience. And it's, uh, it's great to be able to offer that to people. Yeah. Both, both guys, like I said, they're both princes, uh, love them dearly. But they also know that organizations are powered by people. Mm. And that's why they've been so successful. Sure. So we're thinking about topics today. We're going through our minds. Yeah, I got a hot one for you. There's so, oh, nice, nice. Because there's so many things that yeah. we can talk about. I, I, I can't stop thinking about, you know, episode 20 and, and how far we can go into helping people. So uh, what do you got for today? Well, I'd like to ask you about return to work. 
oh. in the context of there's an event that happened, hmm. an individual or individuals are returning or integrating back into the system. Yeah. It's complicated. This could take several podcasts actually, but yeah. what does that look like? There's a lot of dynamics that happen. Yeah. What could be going through that individual's yeah. head and how ultimately we can best support them when they come back? Sure. Return to work programs, gosh, um, you know, how much time do we have? Like I said, it's, yeah. I've, I've consulted this for this in numerous domains and there's so many people with really good intention and so many obstacles. And unfortunately, privacy becomes one of those obstacles. It shouldn't be. It's a protective measure. It's meant to keep the privacy and honoring of, of that employee why they went on leave. So if somebody goes off on leave and for um, mental health reasons or some sort of relationship dynamic, they don't necessarily have to disclose the details as to why they want to go on leave. They can go to their EAP, uh, the benefits company, and uh, receive support. What's interesting is that depending on the job and what's being expected, the company doesn't have the right to know what the details of those things are, right? Just, just automatically. There has to be a permission that's given. And a lot of times, given depending on what the relationship looks like, that permission might not be given. And you end up having this, uh, the conundrum ends up being that this person's going to return to work, but you're going to have a psychologist or a social worker or a physician or somebody that's going to basically sign off and say this person can return to work. The caveat is, is that when it's not physical, when it is in any other context or domain around mental health or socio-emotional or um, what is going on for that person, if we do not understand if, what it is that that person has went off on, does that EAP person, that psychologist, that social worker that's signing off saying they can return to work, do they fully understand the full scope and expectation of the job that they're going back to? And how do they measure they are fit for duty? Right. So it kind of breaks down into two different things I'm thinking. Like if there is an incident or accident that takes place mm -hmm. in the job, then most people know what happened. Sure. But they may not know how the person's struggling um, mm. You know, spiritually or ment mentally with, with the event, yeah. or a person just simply goes on leave because of stress for whatever reason, maybe something, there's an event that happened in their life, mm -hmm. uh, someone they, very close to them is gone or whatever happened there, um, tragic happens, you're right. So the employer really doesn't have the right to dig into that because they've gone mm -hmm. on, on stress leave. Mm -hmm. And there's a temptation there for some people to play Sherlock Holmes to try to figure out that they're mm -hmm. thinking the best way of the interest of the employee. Sure. Um, for me, when I'm presented with these situations, I don't need to know the event. I just need to understand how I can best support that person when they come back on the job site yeah. so I don't put them in a situation that could trigger them or set them back. Yes. You know, it's about integrating them back into the system. Sure. But, uh, and it's, uh, it's very tricky. Because you have to be mindful of a person's uh, privacy, and it's a big deal. Yeah, and I find that when I find that in that process, you're right. I just need to know how to support them. In order for that clinician to competently and with integrity to be able to truly give you that information, they have to know what is the scope of your expectation for them back on the job. Right? So if I have somebody, the example I always give, right? So if let's say them coming back in the job, their job is to count widgets on an assembly line. You might have a psychologist that says, or a social worker that says, yes, okay, so they are uh, emotionally stable enough to be able to do high repetition with little socialization activity and be able to get through the day. 
But let's say that job is not counting widgets on the assembly line. It is that they have to manage a hundred um, hundred uh, person crew. Um, they have to be holding of several uh, computations in a day, and they have to constantly be um, assessing and accurately um, determining something related to a computation or or a processing event or something that you know may have a significant impact on the environment, on that group, on other people, that's a different degree of responsibility. And if I don't know that as a clinician, if I don't know fully understand the scope of that, I might know that, yes, you're an engineer in processing, but you know, what do I know what an engineer in processing would do? Um, then I'm at a disadvantage. And if we're not talking, you know, if, my, if either that person, that employee is not talking with that person about the details of it, or they're not able to have access to you, then we're all at a disadvantage. And it's like, well, you know, the, the doc said that you're good to come back. So, okay, I guess we'll just kind of get started. And what you often end up seeing is people doing it on a slow, gradual transition. We'll just start you off kind of slow with some quick, easy jobs and, and just to kind of build yourself up. And we'll keep an eye on you. We don't really know what we're looking for other than maybe some irregularities from how we knew you before. But we'll just kind of keep an eye on it, even though we're not trained to really know what we're looking for, nor do we know what it is. It's a disadvantage. Yeah, for sure. It makes it really complicated. Like, for example, you know, you rely heavily on the clinician. If you have that relationship of can that person actually lead a crew? Can, are they okay to be that person? Sure. You know, the sage in the stage type uh, mm -hmm. idea where mm -hmm. they are directing traffic. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. It may be, it may not be. Mm -hmm. Or it may be a, they need to work independently, quasi-independently on things. Maybe it's scheduling, maybe it's planning, maybe it's estimating, sure. mm -hmm. uh, whatever it is, because they can't have that interaction with a pile of people. Sure. Again, we, you, know, you don't have the right to ask what, what happened. Yes. You're just trying to bring this per person back into the fold gently without causing mm -hmm. more issues. A quick, easy example for our audience to understand is that, let's say somebody endured a concussion. Right, so a mild traumatic brain injury. Sure. Right, so they have a concussion. Yeah. The impact of that can very well impact your conflict resolution, your problems um, uh, solving, your logical uh, filtering of information. Right, your executive functioning. Right, that aspect of your brain might be impacted and require some therapy before you're able to do complex uh, decision making and abstract thinking and, and deductive reasoning. I want to be able to understand that. However, that person might be able to, in a enclosed space, you know, in an isolated office, be able to still do some work as long as they have certain breaks and certain times in which we're looking at it. They might be able to do a whole host of um, activities, except for ones that might be specific to significant abstract reasoning and decision making. And that's just from a concussion, right? It takes time for that to heal. It can heal. There can be rewiring of the brain and moving forward for sure. But we have to understand that piece. The challenges that I find is that the onus then is put on the person who went on leave. Because ultimately, they are the only person that is able to provide consent and permission for that clinician and you, the company, to be able to have a conversation. Ultimately, it's within their grasp. And now we lead down the rabbit hole of all the shame and embarrassment and judgment that can come with what if they learn, what if they have a conversation with this person I've been disclosing personal information to, right? What if they end up hearing this and they think they don't understand concussion, 
they hear the word traumatic brain injury, like, oh, well, now he's brain injured, so he's, you know, and they have a bunch of pejorative judgmental pieces there. It just becomes this tapestry of insecurity that this person now is holding. And what are they holding? They're holding a degree of mental responsibility to make this, this decision. And when we think about mental responsibility in this context, it is, does this person appreciate the nature, quality, and impact of this decision of being back on the job and the expectations therein? And I think it is oftentimes an, an unfair expectation for that person. Um, yeah, I find it to be an unfair expectation. Well, I've got a couple examples. and. Uh someone who's fairly close to me was in a confined space, mm -hmm. uh, lost consciousness uh, due to a concussion. And uh, it really affected him not only uh, on several levels. One, mm -hmm. they had to remove him from the confined space. Mm -hmm. The concussion was so significant that it caused severe trauma to mm -hmm. the brain, mm -hmm. which this is your field, not, not mine. Mm -hmm. um, because of him being away and because of the injury to his, his head, it caused a lot of marital issues. Mm -hmm. And I found that um, when they were trying to integrate him back into the fold, they weren't really appreciating that he's different, like he, mm -hmm. he has changed. Yes. Yeah. And there's certain situations that he can't be in, plus the, the weight of the marital issues mm -hmm. and all the rest of that stuff. So it made it very complicated. Mm -hmm. Although he's back on the job site now and mm -hmm. things are moving in a positive direction, but this is over a five or six year period. Sure. You know. People are just now learning about brain injury. I've been very fortunate over the last uh, six years to be actively presenting and supporting um, organizations in BC um, and speaking. I'm actually in the process of writing curriculum for BC around brain injury. People don't appreciate how common it is, how common concussions are and the ripple effect that can happen. People think brain injury, they have to have a, such a severity of accident that you know there's gray matter spilled over on the road and so, okay, I can see that, so clearly this person has a brain injury. What they don't realize is the, the subtle impacts that can happen from a mild traumatic brain injury. And the impacts are still significant, but we call it the invisible injury because there's no cast Right? There's no neck brace. There's no cut or wound that you can see. And yet there is something, as you said, significantly different about this person. And oftentimes it is fatigue is a significant factor. Once the brain has been injured, even a year or two thereafter, fatigue can play a significant part in this person's life where they get exhausted um, much more easily than they ever would before. The taxing nature of simply uh, managing and navigating the day, even going driving over a long distance can be taxing and requiring a different um, frequency of breaks throughout the day just to be able to be optimal, just be able to function. It can happen. You can absolutely be optimal as long as you organize and are considerate and mindful of, of that aspect. Tolerance. When we have an impact on the thinking part of our brain that's around conflict resolution and problem solving and decision making, that sort of aspect here, what we end up finding is, is that that communication between the emotional brain and the thinking brain that balances us all through to navigate becomes impacted, becomes derailed at times. And what we find is that people can find themselves stuck in this emotional brain loop where their distress tolerance is not as great as it was before. So they might find themselves being snappy. They might find themselves being a little more uh, aggressive or explosive. 
Um, they might find themselves where they're displacing uh, some anger that they have in one situation um, much more on family members. And family members are like, you know, who's this person here? You know, I've never, I've never seen mom or dad or, or my brother or sister react so strongly over this. It wasn't, look, it, there'll be another episode next week. Or, hey, we'll make something else. It's okay, right? There becomes a shock reaction. And so distress tolerance, emotional reactivity, um, and the inability sometimes to do things or make decisions in way and even be creative because creative requires creativity requires abstract thinking creative in ways in which they were before and there's a note to it there's a mental note that occurs where people are aware it's not like they're blissfully unaware they're aware that why am i not able to do this or why is my interest not present they might even find themselves having a heightened sensory sensitivity throughout all their sensory fields all their sensory fields might have a, a different degree of sensitivity. And these are things that people don't talk about. And these are things that make it challenging for you as an employer about how best do I support that person. If this person fully doesn't, doesn't have a grasp as to how it's impacting them, and you're not able to speak to that therapist or that neurologist that is supporting that individual, what does that dynamic look like? Right? How can that how can we solve that piece? So we, can we go back to talking about the emotional brain and the logical brain cause, and sure. the conflicts in between with all that? Because I really don't, uh, I'm, I'm good on boilers, not good on that. Right, so. right, right, right. <laughs> you know, um, if we take a step back a little bit, just, just to, to be able to understand this emotional brain, thinking brain aspect, just on a very, if we understand the fundamentals of this, all of a sudden this will make a little more sense. Um, let's go back to our cave person days and think about just the natural Let's talk about evolutionary biology. Sure. I know we're thinking, hey, Don, that was supposed to be an easier thing, not evolutionary biology. But if we look at evolutionary biology, there's a couple of things we can think about that we know how the brain evolved. If we go back to our cave person days, if there's a rustling in the bushes, maybe there's a saber-toothed tiger there. And first, our brain said, I'm going to be as still as possible. I'll freeze, like a deer in headlights sort of thing. Right. And maybe the saber-toothed tiger doesn't see me and moves along. Well, unfortunately, we became a Scooby snack one too many times. And so evolution moves forward and says, hey, there's a rustling in the bushes here. I can't just be freezing. So now I can decide now if I'm going to actually freeze, but I can also fight the saber-toothed tiger, or I could run away from the saber-toothed tiger. I'd be running. Yeah, hopefully we ran a little more times in fighting, right? <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's what we want to have. So this becomes the early fundamental building blocks of all of our brains of our body. This is part of our evolution. This is for everyone. This is not just for certain people. This is for everyone. When you read this area of our brain within our research, literally within research articles that refer to it as your reptilian brain, it's that, that old. Eventually, over time, what ended up happening when we follow things like what's referred to as uh, polyvagal theory, and uh, basically what they look at how the brain evolved further to have abstract thinking and problem-solving decision-making, and the, the looking at bio, um, evolution is basically to say there was a rustling in the bushes here. But maybe this time, it's not a saber-toothed tiger. Maybe it's another cave person. And part of my survival is dependent on being in groups. I can survive better if I'm in groups. And so I have to find a way of suppressing my fight and flight mode. So I'm not fighting or running away from whatever's in the bushes. I have to be able to discriminate between what's happening there and explore and investigate. 
And when we see this, when we look at evolution, this becomes the secondary part of our brain, so our thinking part of our brain, so more of our abstract reasoning. So once we started living versus just surviving, we started developing abstract reasoning and problem solving. So I hear a bang outside, I jump, right? Involuntarily, my pupils dilate, a hairs go on my arm, but when I'm, within milliseconds, that same message goes to my thinking brain looking for a logical second opinion, right? What's over there? What was that? Something knocked over. So I go and investigate. I determine over there, oh, there was a bunch of boxes that knocked over. I don't have to freeze. I don't have to go and fight the boxes. I don't have to run away from the boxes, right? right. So that thinking brain sends that logical second opinion back to the emotional brain and says, okay, you can chill. It's all right. The interesting piece, and I find this to be even though it's, it's very rudimentary in the brain, I find this so powerful, is that the emotional brain decides whether or, not, whether or not it's going to accept that assessment. Going back to our brain injury situation. Right. People who, you think about people with high anxiety, people who um, uh, have had uh, um, impact on their brain through drug abuse, people who have had in vitro exposure throughout their early in their life and are really not fully aware, but some of those neural pathways that connect the emotional brain and the thinking brain have been impacted. Somebody who has a concussion and that communication line from that emotional brain to thinking brain has been frayed. What occurs is, is that emotional brain has that experience, but it ends up getting derailed when it goes to the thinking brain. Basically it goes, I don't need a logical second opinion. I'm gonna be in this emotional brain loop. Right. So all of a sudden I'm in one or two steps in fight and flight mode all the time. I find myself anxiously navigating my way through and being particularly defensive. So you have guys that have a reflexive no. Hey, let's do this. We got this great plan. We're going to be able to do this here. Nah, yeah, that's not going to work. It's not going to work. Nah, I'm not interested in that, right? Oh, why don't you try this new job? I got this new job at this new place. You could do it. Nah, you know, I got to kind of think about it, right? They have this defensive posture because they are, to try something new, to explore a new idea, to th have divergent thinking, to be successful, is risky. So all of a sudden, my distress tolerance is lower, I find that I'm more reactive, I'm much more defensive, and quickly, you end up having somebody be anxious as well as potentially depressed as they start realizing that their life is unraveling because the people that are close to them are going, what are you doing? You've changed, right? You're you're not the nice guy that I know, or that was kind of mean. And then you, but you don't have much control over it. Your ability to kind of navigate and manage things is decreased significantly. And so now we have this, this conundrum, right? That this challenge that ends up occurring where a lot of guys will start experiencing things that are similar to maybe PTSD symptoms. They might find themselves with such a degree of high anxiety that their ability to navigate the world around them and the relationships they're in become incredibly hampered. Right, so I'm not to overgeneralize. So what mm -hmm. I'm hearing is that there's like an impediment between one part of the brain to the other part of the brain, the emotional to logical. Yeah. So when you have a, a concussion, for example, sure. what I've and not being a clinician, just mm -hmm. what I've noticed sure. is that, uh, in particular with a couple friends of mine, is that they used to be really gregarious, outgoing, all the rest of that, and they've kind of it's been suppressed. Yeah. And it's almost like if I'm hearing you right, they've gone to a place of safety. So that risk taking of like hey, it's a good job, you know, it, it, you'll kill it, you've done it before. Mm -hmm. It's just, mm -hmm. they just got trapped in that emotional loop of, no, just keep me on this path, I don't want to try anything new, even though I've done it before, I'm just happy mm -hmm. yeah. being here. Is that 
common? Yeah, well, think about it this way. To be gregarious, happy, outgoing, adventurous takes confidence. It takes hope. It takes um, uh, ability to consider all the options and being willing to risk it if it flops. Right. This person here that might have difficulty organizing their thoughts, expressing themselves in a way that they know they want to, but their expressive language has been impacted by whatever's happened here, might say, you know, I'm going to hold my cards a little bit tighter right now because I'm thinking about this, but I'm getting confused easy. We talk about mental fatigue that people have, right? People have, I'm in a fog. Foggy thinking is a, is a common term that people are using quite a bit these days. And if you have that, now all of a sudden my ability to be witty, to be jokey, to kind of throw in a few jabs here, knowing I might kind of get some back, now becomes a very threatening situation, right? Especially if I got a crew that, let's say they use a lot of sarcasm. I'm not a fan of sarcasm in general because usually it's pushing one person down to raise the other up. Right. It also requires a certain degree of uh, confidence to endure that. And so if I know that there's people being sarcastic around me and I'm having a hard time figuring out are they joking, not joking, what that looks like, I'm just going to kind of hold myself back a little bit and kind of observe and not engage. But let's say that's different than how people normally experience me. It's going to be like, well, what's, what's going on with you, Jim? You know, you seem kind of quiet. Oh, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. And you kind of want to fluff it up. Everything's okay. It's all good because you just kind of want to keep it at bay. And the reality is, is that over time, it's like, well, you know, it's been about a month now or two months now, and you're, you're still kind of at a distance here. Right. And that weighs on you. Now I'm getting depressed. Now I'm having self-judgment. Now I'm thinking I'm not competent. Now I'm thinking that there's something wrong, but what do I say? What if they take away my license? What if they don't allow me to do this? What does it mean with my relationship? At the same time, my wife's going, you know, who the hell are you, right? The kids are wondering why you're much more snappy and not the happy-go-lucky dad that you were before, or mom, you know, either way. These all end up compounding. And that's indicating, or at least stating, that no other things are happening, like a family member passes away or some other normal life event occurs that impacts you. Now, all of a sudden... You're not prepared to, you're having a hard time navigating your own life, let alone holding space for all these other dynamics that would otherwise be presented within your life. So what would you, what would you suggest to a company who wants to support someone returning to work who's mm -hmm. had a brain injury, like a concussion? Mm -hmm. um, like just generalizations, of course, because you can't really sure. go into specifics. Sure. But sure. Um, how would you best support that person? What would be the building blocks, just the basic sure. stuff? I would really want to be clear, particularly with a, with a concussion, I would want to have a clear discussion with a trained professional as to what the expectations of the jobs are uh, that they can participate in and find the optimal challenge or experience to utilize that person. We don't want to take away purpose and meaning from right. somebody's life. And we also don't want to set them up for failure. To do that, I have to understand what the scope is. And a lot of times the idea of kind of doing it on these kind of short, brief succession plans that people with, you know, good intentions do do. The great thing about that is, is that I would want to do that with an accurate measure as to what I'm looking at, right? So if we're putting this in here, let's say we're doing, you know, your gentleman that experienced some PTSD and, and being in a certain environment in which that event happened. I would really want to be looking at training sites that model 
or at least show some sort of representation of a similar thing, and then progressively have him being introduced to that environment if he wished to do that, right? So how would I introduce him to that environment progressively while being supported? A lot of guys, ah, just get me back in there, I'll do it. Then they get in there and then the moment of truth actually happens and they can't control the involuntary emotional brain reaction to the situation and now they're in danger again, right? right. So how can we model and support that in an optimal way, an optimal degree of challenge, which is still productive and has meaning for the company. You're not, you're not going to all of a sudden become the company sanitation guy picking up garbage and recycling because um, that's diminishing, right? That's depressing in and of itself if in such case you were in a position that was very different than that. Not diminishing recycling and garbage guys. Um, just a matter of the, a significant departure from what you were doing before, right? We want to be mindful of that. What are those shades? What are those shades of what that job was and to be able to move forward with it? That's a, that's a first key aspect. Because sometimes what happens is, uh, and there's, there's great benefit to this, mm -hmm. and I've, I've seen some successes where the individual comes back, injured worker, brain trauma, whatever the heck happened, mm -hmm. and they don't really want them on the shop floor. They don't want mm -hmm. them out in the shut, shut down work mm -hmm. in a way. So they offer them, they teach them how to do scheduling or estimating that sure. type of stuff. So yeah. it's a great skill. works for some, doesn't work for all, because sure. not everyone really is good on computers mm -hmm. or really wants to learn that type of stuff. Or the one I'm not really in too much favor is sticking that guy into a tool crib or sticking him into, or a person into a corner mm -hmm. and saying, just sit over there, don't oh. talk to anybody and just, uh, Stay out of our yeah. way and we'll stay out of your way. That's right. You still got your job, you got your paycheck. And yeah, we've done our thing. Let's go through the motions. Yeah, we've done our oh, thing. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. I mean, you think about how disheartening that can be for that person and talk about losing your sense of self. You think about that experience. I am a strong believer whenever I've done consultations, um, I'll give you two, two examples, right? And we can, you know, we can continue on other episodes for sure. Um, I want for that person to return that first day, have somebody meet them at the gate. Have someone meet them at the gate. Because we have to also talk about environmental safety. And environmental safety is recognizing that the environment itself of a work environment, particularly when there's been an injury at the workplace, holds a lot of impact and potential trauma. So simply pulling up in that parking lot that you've done a thousand times, and all of a sudden I'm back here again, can cause a visceral response, right? The body can have a reaction because the emotional brain is all about survival and self-protection, right? So it tags and catalogs every reminder so you don't forget these things are associated with, with this event, this significant trauma event that occurred kind of thing. So if you had a workplace injury, recognize that from the time you pull, you pull into that, that uh, parking lot, we want to be supporting. And so I have somebody meet me at the gate and we'll talk about what that routine would look like. I would even have full overt transparency as to what that sequence is going to look like. And I would also want that person to meet me at the gate, somebody who I believe has my best interest at heart. Just to walk through, just to go through that first day, I might even, depending on the severity of the event, even do a couple of dry runs where I come in just to kind of check out a few things, not really much in the way of expectations, but just kind of see the routine, maybe learn a little bit about the new expectation or job, look at goodness of fit, have a supportive experience without having the expectation of doing a full job that first day. It's a great way to be able to move in here. The other thing is, it's a if we're truly going to be talking about culture, if we're truly going to be talking about team building, we must provide education to whoever that crew is. 
and that supervisor. We can't just simply say, this person here had that, we all saw that they may have had a brain injury, they're coming back and we're gonna support them. You can't know how we're supporting them. You can't know what's going on here. Um, just do what you can do. A lot of people will either walk on eggshells around that person and they'll feel like they're some weirdo guy all day because everyone's looking at me strangely and they just want people to talk to them normally. Or they might be doing overly pampering and sorts of things, which also can be frustrating and discouraging for that person. So I want to educate my team so they can be informed on how best to support that person. And it can be really simple things, right, as to what those parameters are. And it'd be great if we can have the employee add to that narrative, add to that commentary as to what they might hope to have as an experience in these first couple of weeks. And once we have that, yes, there's a part that is the intangibles, that we'll just navigate our way through. We will figure it out as we go. We can't predict everything. However, if we're doing so with collaborative support, then we're more likely to be successful than not. So what I'm hearing is, is that we just do the basic, like the fundamentals, planning, having a discussion and integration. Like, again, we don't need to know the details, but how can we best support the person to come in? Like just sticking a person in the corner um, I don't think it's much benefit. That's why I like the investment into the training piece. Mm -hmm. Then I like, uh, we should be doing more of it, of the slow integration back into the, to the fold perhaps and just sort of monitoring it and making sure it's okay. Well, the slow integration must be informed. That becomes a thing, right? So not all slow integrations are created equal, okay. right? So we do a slow integration but that can mean very different things. That could just mean, okay, well, you're gonna work two hours and then tomorrow you're gonna to work four hours and then you're gonna work full six hours and then you'll do a full eight hour, right? right? And that might be it. And no one else is, nothing else is happening. To make that gradual transition in be an informed process that we're collaborating with that individual and once again, having expectations that match where they're at is gonna allow you to be much more successful. And that's why I say right from the gate all the way to the end of the leave, end of the, to, uh, at the end of the day, and also have your crew and people that are gonna be directly interacting with them, knowing how to engage and support and what to look for and not to look for. So we're not doing the guessing game. People aren't doing the detective Sherlock Holmes things. And with the great intentions, I wanna be clear, with the best of intentions, but unknowingly stomping all over somebody's vulnerabilities. Right. And we can't have that an informed transition without having that communication between either that person or and or um, whoever has been supporting them. Right. Yeah. And that's what makes a lot of this difficult because I clearly, like, it's not my field of work mm -hmm. to understand that. Sure. I, just, I get myself in situations, and very rarely, I guess, I do have to add that, that uh, supporting that person back into the work group. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and what that looks like. And it's very complicated. It is. It is. I think it's going to be more than one podcast. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm grateful that we had this discussion. Looking forward to adding more kind of thing. I appreciate you, brother. All right. Cheers. Thanks. Hi, guys. My name is Jim Watson, a.k.a. The Construction Guy. And one of the things I like about this podcast in particular is that we want to support a positive culture, not only for individuals, but the company itself. Mm -hmm. And as you probably figured out by now, I love stories. I love telling my stories, but also love hearing stories. And if you feel like sharing your stories with us, we would love to hear it. But I'd ask you to keep the names, the places, the you know, we just want to hear the situation and uh, we'll have the good doctor here dissect it mm -hmm. and uh, give you a point of view from a mm -hmm. clinical uh, mm -hmm. way.
it'd be great to be able to hear from people. And we also want you to recognize that your individual experiences, we don't necessarily know all the details with it. We're describing stories. We're hoping it's relatable to you. And we're also hoping that it gives you a level of comfort and an opportunity to continue this conversation with somebody else. Right? So if you want to talk with your, your colleagues or your, your supervisor or your family or your friends, find local resources to continue this conversation because I feel that this is a, a great opportunity to be able to move yourself forward and to be able to expand. At the end of the day, our wellness cannot be something we keep secret. We have to educate others as to what we need and want in order to ultimately be successful. Exactly. Communication is key. Yeah. Talking it out. Excellent. Right on. Right. Really want to thank you guys for watching, taking your time to pay attention to us and banter back and forth. Look forward to hearing how you've uh, manifested your flow, how you've been able to do your act of wellness, and uh, looking forward to uh, seeing you at some point. Have a good one.